back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your ongoing interviewer each week. Today, I couldn't be more excited about our guest, Whitney Johnson, the prolific author, advisor, keynote speaker, organizational consultant, is joining us from her home in Virginia. Whitney, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you for having me, Scott. Whitney, great conversation planned today. I want to give the audience a little bit of sense of how we became encountered, if you will. I heard you speak at the World Business Forum about six months ago in New York City. And for most people in the United States, that is kind of the penultimate speaking event that's uh, you know, broadcast around the world. And then I was so engaged by your speech at the World Business Forum, I invited you as a guest on Franklin Covey's radio program called Great Life, Great Career, which airs on iHeartRadio. Uh, about two months ago, we had a discussion around one of your previous books called Disrupt Yourself, and I found that so valuable personally to me and to our listeners. We've invited you back on, on leadership to discuss another one of your books, Build an A-Team. I'm not sure which one's my favorite because they're both so valuable. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad, glad to hear it. So, Whitney, we're going to spend our time today on Build an A-Team, but I did think that the discussion around Disrupt Yourself, your other book on the radio program, was super instructive. Would you take maybe a minute or two and talk about why you wrote the other book, Disrupt Yourself, and what are some of the big ideas that people find so valuable in it? Yeah, so Disrupt Yourself came about when I was I was working with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, who I believe is currently on the board at Franklin Covey. And, and as we were investing, I, um, I had this big aha that this theory of disruption that we were applying to products and services and companies and countries actually also applied to people. And so I found myself wanting to really think about this and chase it down. And so as we were doing that work and I was thinking about it, I had another big insight, which was that the S curve that we were applying for investing also applied to people. And so what I have written about in Disrupt Yourself is this theory or framework of personal disruption. It's a framework that uh, looks at this S curve and helps you know when you get to the top of a learning curve, when it's time to jump to the bottom of a new one, because we all kind of intuitively know when it's time to do something new, but what this framework of personal disruption does is it, it allows you to do it systematically and effectively. So you get to the top of a learning curve, you now know it's time to jump to the bottom of a new one, and I have a seven-point framework of personal disruption that allows you to jump to that new curve, to do it effectively, quickly, easily, and then to move along that curve well um, also. And so there's those seven points of take the right risks, play to your distinctive strengths, embrace your constraints, uh, battle your sense of entitlement, step back in order to grow, give failure its due, and then at the top of the curve, the bottom of the curve, and everywhere in between, be driven by discovery. And so those are the seven points, and that's the framework of personal disruption that will allow you to make change and do it well, and perhaps not easily, but certainly have a structure by which to follow that makes it a little bit less scary and a little bit less daunting when it's time to do the thing you know you need to do. Whitney, it's a great recap. I highly recommend your book, Disrupt Yourself. In fact, I was telling you off air, I know a fair amount about the book business. Right? I probably read about 200 books a year now, almost all nonfiction as part of my role as our thought leader, uh, uh, le the leader of our thought leaders at Franklin Covey. What I love about your books is they're the right length. 
I think that most business books, the last half of them is not as useful as the first half, meaning I think publishers and editors want a certain number of words out of most biz business authors, and it's why the last half of most books aren't as engaging as the first half. I think your books are around 170 pages. I think it's the right length because your books are as engaging from the beginning to the end. So on your next book, keep it the same length. Thank you. I appreciate that. So we'll talk about building a team and the rest of our conversation. I want to get to the S-curve of learning, which is the kind of the concept for the whole book, in just a moment. But in your introduction, one of many great stories you shared that are viscerally kind of burned in my memory is a story you share about a company. Would you walk us through a minute of this opening story in building a team? Yes, I would be happy to. So what I want to set the stage, I want you to imagine that you've just gotten a call from a headhunter and it's for a job with a company that makes a product that was invented 60, 70 years ago. And at the time it was this very important product. Um, it kept rockets and missiles from rusting, but since then not much has changed, not even the label. And so the question is like, if you get that call, are you going to pick up the phone or even entertain the possibility? And most of us as we're listening to that think, yeah, probably not. I mean, this doesn't sound like like a Silicon Valley company. But then imagine that the headhunter has told you that the engagement scores at this company are off the charts. They're 90% plus versus an average in the United States of 30% and 15% globally. And the headhunter tells you that the market capitalization for this company over the last two decades has grown from $250 million to $2 billion, which is an eight-fold increase, significantly outperforming the S&P 500. And I can tell, I know, I, I can't see you, I can't hear you, but I know you're a lot more interested than you were before. And the punchline is, is this is WD-40. It is a company that makes a can of oil. Super compelling. And then the question for me, and I think, I think for all of us, is we tend to think, well, I only want to work at a company that is exciting, that's flashy, that's, that's Silicon Valley. And yet... This is a company that's not flashy. It's not exciting. It's not Silicon Valley and people want to work there. And so why do they want to work there? And what we found in our research is as we interviewed several people, we interviewed the CEO, we discovered that three of their senior people started as a receptionist. One is now the company brand manager. Um, when we administered our disruption diagnostic at the company, we learned that 60%, 60% of the people believe that they can achieve their career goals without ever changing. And what we discovered is that this is a company that allows their people to learn, leap, and repeat. They practice personal disruption. And so what makes a company a place where people want to work is not that it makes a flashy product. It's a company that allows their people um, to, to learn, leap, and repeat, to honors the fact that we're all learning machines and that we want to not know how to do something, figure it out, master it, and start all over again. We, we want to disrupt ourselves. Whitney, I read the WD story twice because I thought it was such a great metaphor for how we at Franklin Covey and our clients can become an organization to kind of quote you where people can fulfill their entire careers inside of the firm versus going outside of the firm. Would you remind our viewers today what WD40 stands for? Because the name actually has some great inspiration behind it. Oh my goodness, I have completely forgotten. I'll, I'll pitch it, it to you. I'll remind pitch it to you. So me. You remind our listeners. I will, sorry. It's, so it's called, the WD is for water displacement, 
But right. the 40, I think, was like their 40th attempt. Yes. At, at, yes. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so water displacement at WD and then 40 is the 40th try. It took them 40 tries to get to the actual product. So pretty fascinating stuff. And But once they got the product, and again, this is what I find interesting, is that this is the same product the last 60 years, but they found ways for to be innovative regardless of it being a very, very similar product. They did try to experiment with the um, with it once, but it smelled really bad, so they went back to the original <laughs> formula. <laughs> I don't expect you to remember all of your stories across all of your books, so no problem there. <laughs> well, I'm glad you remembered. So well, it was, it was, it was, you wrote it so in such a compelling manner, I, I, I don't forget it, actually. Whitney, <laughs> let's talk about this concept called the S-curve of learning, because that's kind of instructive mm -hmm. to our next uh, 15, 20 minutes on here. Yeah. I'm going to put up on the screen this model. It's fairly simplistic, but I think it's quite profound, especially for anybody who's finding themselves, you know, disrupting their career, interested in kind of moving forward, building an A-team. you walk us through this concept? Yeah, so let me back up for just two seconds. So traditionally, you use the S-curve when you were trying to figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. So we used it. It was it was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962, and we used it at our Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clayton to help us figure out, okay, so when is an innovation really going to take off? So what you see when you look at this learning curve or this S-curve is that at the low end, growth is going to be slow until a tipping point is reached, which is typically 10 to 15% penetration of a market. Market and you move into hyper growth and at 90% or saturation, the growth tapers off. Well, the big insight that I had is that this could also help us understand people, the process of, of how we change. So whenever you start a new role, you start a new project, you start a new job, you start anything, you're actually at the bottom of that learning curve. And so what you now know is that the growth, it is going to be slow. It's going to feel like a slog. And because you know that, that helps you avoid discouragement. But then as you put in that effort, you're going to accelerate into competence. And with this comes confidence and engagement. And this is the exciting part of the curve where all your neurons are firing. And so in contrast to when you were at the low end of the curve where a lot of time passed and very little seemed to happen, now in a little time, a lot seems to happen. And then as you approach the top of the curve, growth again flattens out. So a lot of time passes, very little seems to happen. On the one hand, you're at the top of the curve. You're a master, things are easy peasy, but what's happening and the reason the growth is flattening out is because you're no longer learning. You're no longer getting the dopamine squirt that comes with learning those feel good effects of learning. And so if you stay there too long, your plateau, what seems like the flat part of the mountain can become a precipice. And so you've learned, now it's time for you to leap and repeat. It's time for you to disrupt yourself. So that's that's the basic idea of the learning curve. And, and if you look at your lives as you're listening to this and, and watching this, you will discover that you have intuitively done this throughout your life. Started in high school, bottom of the curve, you get to the top, you jump to the bottom of a new curve in college, doing college, your first job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we're trying to do here for you is to really codify it so that you can do it much more systematically. You know, Whitney, I really like how both of these books dovetail, Disrupt Yourself and Build an A-Team, because I've been thinking so much the last couple of months around you know, how I'm disrupting myself. I'm actually pretty good at that, trying new things. I don't have a lot of career or professional fear. And as I'm disrupting myself, I'm trying new things, hosting this program, 
I host this radio program I mentioned on iHeartRadio. And the first, you know, five months of the radio program, there were more critiques than compliments. That's a, that's a kind <laughs> understatement. And you talk about how important it is to understand that early efforts don't yield big rewards. And understanding that helps to avoid discouragement, which I can find myself in. Talk a bit more around how important it is to understand what part of the cycle you're in and kind of how to leverage that to get to the next phase. Yeah, so so one of the ways you can know um, it, you're at the low end of the curve, there are a couple of different markers, is you've just started something new. You're typically, again, on average, six months, six to 12 months at the low end of a learning curve. Um, the growth is going to be slow because the, the exponential growth hasn't kicked in. And so what it's going to feel like is that you've just taken this jumble of of a thousand pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. You put them out on a table and you look at them and you think, I have no idea how all these pieces fit together. And I'm wondering if I should have even taken this job because there's lots of times where I go home and I think, I have no idea what I'm doing. And so, but that's how it's supposed to feel if you're at the low end of the curve. Now, that's, that's the downside, that's the discouragement piece. The upside of being at the low end of the learning curve is that you, it's the launch point. And because you don't know what you're doing, because you're inexperienced, you are capable, and this is where your real value comes into to your manager, is you're capable of asking questions like, why do you do it like this? And some days those are annoying for an, a manager, and some days they're even threatening because they're saying, why do you do it like this? But those questions that you are capable of asking because you are inexperienced can really open the door to innovation. So tip for when you're at the low end of the curve is just to recognize that it is like a jumble of pieces. You're gonna be in that place probably for about six months. It's where you wanna be. But if you can recognize as well that you're also in that inexperience, there's real value that can allow you to, to be open to, to um, asking questions that will help propel you, begin to propel you into the steep part of the curve. You know, Whitney, I think it's a great leadership lesson. In fact, I've looked at this slide probably more than I'd like to admit as I plot myself on it as a leader of a team, and I begin to also plot, maybe rightly or wrongly, different members of my team on it. You mentioned in the book that you know, a great team is in essence a collection of learning curves. Talk to how this concept is important for leaders to understand where their people are on their own learning curves and how they can help them move through so that they do fulfill their careers, hopefully inside the organization versus outside. Yeah, yeah, so, so um, as you just alluded to, just as every single person's on a learning curve, and I, I think that's an important thing to remember. I, I, I know a, a few years ago, I was having a conversation with the CEO and he said, I don't have people, my people aren't on a learning curve. And he was really frustrated and I, and I, and I could sense that. But the fact is, is that everybody's on a learning curve. It may not be the right learning curve. It may be time for them to jump to a new learning curve, but they are on a learning curve. Well, just as you and I are on a learning curve, um, and just as the ocean is made up of many waves, if you think about this S curve, it kind of looks like a wave. Well, your organization, it is a collection of those learning curves. You've got people who are at the low end of their curve. You've got people in the sweet spot. You've got people at the high end. And what we found in our research is that you build a high performing team by optimizing where people are on their learning curves. At any given time, you wanna have 15% of your people at the low end. And as we've just said, the reason you do 
is that you're going to have a longer shelf life, but also because they're asking those questions like, why do we do it like this that can lead to innovation? At any given time, you want to have 15% of your people at the high end of the curve. These are the people who are the masters. They know exactly what they're doing, and they can really anchor the growth of the people who are moving along the curve. They can't stay there too long, as we just mentioned a moment ago but they are also very important and also give people something to bump up against and, and to learn from and to develop and grow before they jump to the bottom of their new learning curve. So 15% at the low end, 15% at the high end, you're doing your math, that gives you 70% of your people on the steep part of the curve. These are your people where all their neurons are firing, they're engaged, they say to themselves, I'm exactly where I should be. Things are hard, but not too hard, easy, but not too easy. And so what you wanna do for as a manager for the people on the steep part of the curve are two primary things. Number one is you wanna give them stretch assignments. It's easy to say they're doing great, I'll leave them be. But we, we know from the law of physics uh, that people need friction, they need constraints, they need challenges. And so the best way to keep people engaged is to give them those stretch assignments. And then the second thing you wanna do for people on the steep part is to appreciate them. Because everything is working, it's so easy just to kind of leave them be, but the thing that we want to do is to appreciate them, to say thank you, um, be very genuine and specific in your praise of, of how much value they are adding and, and, and contributing to your team. So I'll stop there for just a second to see if you have questions. Well, you mentioned a point about constraints. Expand on that. Talk about the positive power of constraints. Yeah, yeah, so I've, I've really become a lover of constraints in the last couple of years as I've done this research. And what do I mean by the power of positive constraints? Well, let's start with um, Jaws. Um, we all know that film, it came out 30 years ago. What some of us don't know is that many of the most iconic scenes in that film came about because the mechanical shark that Steven Spielberg was planning to use, it just didn't work. And so now he's in a position where he's over budget and he's behind schedule. He finally decides, I'm gonna have to shoot these scenes from the shark's point of view and let the music, and everybody can hear that music in their head and our imagination do the rest. Um, another thing to think about is that there was this post-mortem done of 200 failed startups. They divided them into funded and unfunded startups. And, the number one reason that the funded startups, the ones who had gone out, they'd raised outside capital, they had plenty of money. The number one reason that those funded startups went out of business was that they ran out of cash. And it was only the number 10 reason for the ones that had had to bootstrap. And then one other quick example to really kind of emphasize this is that skateboarders are some of the quickest learners in the world because they receive fast and useful feedback. Every action, every move has an immediate consequence. And so if you think about it, were the skateboarders, were, was Spielberg, are these startups successful in spite of or because of their constraints? And so bringing it back to the people that we manage, that we're trying to develop is, are they going to be successful in spite of or because of their constraints. And I say it's because of our constraints. And so we don't wanna give them too much, but if we will give them constraints, if we will give them stretch assignments, they are going to get that much better and contribute that much more to the organization. Whitney, three or four more themes I wanna to touch on in our remaining time. You popularize or invent or give name to a couple of great leadership concepts I wanna talk about. The first one is you encourage leaders to take the time to identify and understand each of their team members' individual talents and strengths. Because it's possible, if you don't have those as a leader, 
you might be blind to them. Can you expand on that concept a little bit? I, I thought it was really insightful to me. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, it's interesting because um, one of the things that happens, and, and I, I discovered this when I was interviewing Walter O'Brien. So he, um, if you've ever watched the television show, show Scorpion or are aware of it, he's this you know, computer programmer, genius, and he wanted to put together and developed a, a company of, of technical computer programming geniuses. And he thought, this is a good idea. I'm gonna get all these geniuses together and we're gonna be successful. Well, what he found is that by having all these geniuses in a room, most of the time he was having to keep them from basically killing themselves. So he's like, huh, all right, let me see what I need to do. Well, at that point he discovers this thing, and this is in his words, this thing called EQ. And maybe I need to get a little bit of that EQ stuff. Well, up until that point in time, he hadn't seen that as a strength. He wasn't aware of it. He certainly didn't value it, but he realized that he needed to hire people who were single mothers, elementary school teachers, psychologists, people who had a high level of EQ. They, they were called super nannies. And so he didn't realize that he needed that and he was blind to it. But once he got it, that was, that was the distinctive strength. So in a room full of computer geniuses, that's good, but what you really need, and the real value is someone who has not high IQ, but high EQ. And so that's one of the things for us to think about is if we don't have it, we might not actually see it or be blind to it because it didn't even occur to us and we might even at some level diminish it. Yeah, I think it's impacted me a lot in terms of uh, taking the things that I value because I think a lot of people, a lot of leaders like people like themselves. We find ourselves gravitating towards people who have talents somewhat similar to ours. But really, building an A team is about being mature, self-aware enough to know, I'm not great at this and I need someone who has different strengths, but also take it a step further and really appreciate because I don't like that or can't do that or that scares me, I, I might need to even exponentiate my interest in the other person because they bring such a complementary skill to the table. It, it takes some level of stretching your comfort level. It really does. It, it does because when someone when someone has completely different strengths than we do, they're oftentimes different different than we are, and so it does take a level of maturity to be able to hold that and to value that person and appreciate them and and like you said, not just want to hire people who are clones of ourselves or a shiny new brighter version of ourselves. Yeah, well said, Whitney. You also have another concept that I loved, which is you kind of pit two types of leaders. One is the talent hoarder, and the other is the, the talent distributor, I, I might call it, the people that ask themselves, where in the organization is the talent that I've helped nurture? Expand on that concept for our viewers. Yeah, so going back to the S-curve, when people get to the top of the curve, they've become an expert, they're a master. And so we look at them and we say, okay, I have now invested several years potentially in this person. Um, I, you know, why would I encourage them? Why would I say, go jump to a new learning curve? Because I like you right where you are, where you are doing me the most good. Um, we know that that is a flawed, flawed view of the world because once they get to the top of that curve, nothing can stay stay as it was and so they're either going to jump to a new curve with you or without you um, or they're going to get complacent and bored and complacent people don't innovate they get disrupted well i think the better path to take is to do what raju narasetti has done he was formerly the ceo of gizmodo media he was at news corp he was had senior executive roles at at wall street journal he said increasingly i'm asking myself where are the people who have worked for me um, what are they doing now? Am I developing talent? And I, I love that because 
what we're talking about when it comes to building an A-team is not building just one A-team in terms of the people who are working for us today of, of allowing them to learn, leap, and repeat, but over time to build vast networks of A-teams. And that implies that over time, people will jump to new learning curves and they won't necessarily be learning curves reporting to you or even inside of your organization. But then there's this wonderful um, vast network of A-teams across, across careers and across companies and across lives. I think it's a great paradigm for leaders to always have a lens through is because we're tempted as we're running big divisions and we're you know, compensated on EBITDA or profit that we think about being talent distributors is that you know, for some time we have the chance to incubate and learn and grow people, learn ourselves from them and that our ultimate goal to quote Liz Wiseman is to be multipliers of talent. You kind of talk, talk about being distributors of talent. It's a great insight every leader should be thinking about. So uh, let's move to another concept. You also talk about a foundation of building a great team are leaders who hire for potential and not necessarily only for proficiency. Talk about that. Yeah, so, um, so to talk about that, I wanna tell you a quick story. Um, they're, they're in the mid 1800s, there's this, there's this place called Butte, Montana, and it's known as the richest hill on the earth. On earth. But the story behind that is that in the mid 1800s, it attracted miners. They were panning for gold and silver. The initial rush was very disappointing. So those early miners, they sold off their claims for dirt cheap. Next wave of miners discovers copper. Well, at the time, copper was not valuable. Um, it was just not valuable, but technology advanced, electrical wiring became a theme and copper became extremely valuable. And so these patient miners are now known as the copper kings. And I, I think of that when I think about people saying, I can't find anybody to hire. Oftentimes they're looking for top of the curve expertise. They're looking for the gold standard when I would argue copper would do. In fact, there are compelling reasons to go for copper to hire for potential rather than proficiency, basically at the low end of the learning curve. Because what does that mean? When you get people at the low end of the learning curve, you're going to have them engaged and learning in your organization in this role for three to four years on average. Time plus competence equals boredom. Um, if you hire people at the top of the curve, they're going to be there six months, maybe a year. And they once they've figured out how to navigate inside of the organization, they're ready to do something new, but you're not going to fire them. So now what do you do? So you've got all this latent innovation capacity that's just sitting there unless you let them jump to new learning curves. So hiring for potential is this idea of bringing people into your organization at the low end of the learning curve, honoring the cycle of learn, leap, and repeat. And when you do, they will be loyal. And so they will want to stay and be like at WD-40, believing that they can achieve their career goals without ever leaving because you will honor that cycle of learning. Whitney, this concept is easier said than done. But you talk in your book about how you know, great organizations that have great leaders who build A-teams really strive to build a culture where people can satisfy their career objectives inside the organization versus leaving. Says easy, does hard. Are there any tips or practical advice you might give leaders who say, well, I can't control that, and people have, you know, um, interest outside and that jobs all have a kind of expiration by date. What advice yeah. would you give us to stretch our thinking on how we can keep people engaged maybe longer than what is normal and have them truly try to build their careers inside versus outside? 
Well, there are a couple of questions there. I would say number one is this idea of truly engaged. Let's say, for example, someone's at the top of a curve and for whatever reason, they can't jump to a new curve. They, they just can't. So there are some things you can do there. Number one, you can um, jump in place, jump in place by doing things like getting a coach, by making your personal commit to, commitment to study the industry, to study leadership. The second thing you can do when you're at the top of the curve is become the master to the apprentice. Trying to teach and bring people along that curve is a whole different learning curve. And the third thing you can do with people at the top of that curve is you can give them a stretch assignment. You can, you may not jump and may not want to jump, but you can give them something really hard to do so they effectively slide, slide back down the curve. So those are some things that you can do for people at the top of the curve. I'd say in general, um, the idea is, is that just to recognize whenever you bring someone in, there's a sense of, you know, this is going to be my one true employee. They're going to stay in this role forever. But if you know from the outset that there is this sort of biology of development and learning that has to take place and you got this person for three to four years and then what are you going to do next with this person and what are they going to do and then what opportunities do you have for other people? You start to think of things differently and will and will operationalize things differently as a consequence. So those are a couple of suggestions Great. that I would make. Whitney, I have a coach in my life that uh, told me once that everybody comes to a point in their career where they've learned you know, 95% of what they're going to learn and they've given maybe 95% of what they have to offer. And the effort it takes to take or give the last 5% isn't worth it. And it's kind of similar to your concept of every role has a you know, best buy date, you know, kind of, you know, mm -hmm. expiration date. Drawing also from your book, Disrupt Yourself, how does someone know when they're at that 95% and the last 5% isn't worth it or their, you know, best buy date is coming up? What's the intuitive signs people know are true? And it might be time to disrupt themselves inside or outside their current role. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, so one of the ways that you can know is you can use time as a, as a starting point of like, if I've been in this role for more than four years, that's an indicator that I need to sort of ask the question. Once you've done that, then you can say to yourself, am I loving work? Like, am I enjoying work? Am I having fun? Am I feeling challenged? Then that would suggest that you're continuing to be on the steep or the sweet spot of the curve. If instead that you're finding yourself thinking, you know, I feel a little bit bored. This isn't as fun for me as it was. When people have new ideas, you say, you find yourself saying, well, we've already tried that. Um, you find yourself just dialing it in a little bit, wondering what else could be out there. Everybody comes to you and asks you questions and you don't find yourself asking questions in part because you're just not that interested in knowing. Those are all signals for you that it is time for you to jump to a new learning curve. One of the things that I think is really interesting and some, it's a hypothesis, I cannot prove it, but I believe it to be true. I think, you know, 15% of the workforce gets laid off or fired every year. I believe, again, hypothesis, that one of the reasons that people get fired is that they're at the top of the learning curve. And this has happened to me, by the way, is that you're at the top in the learning curve. You know it's time for you to go. You won't do go because you're scared right. of jumping. And so then the universe, it, it gives you that nudge. And so those are some markers or indicators that you can look at to say, you know, I think it's probably time for me to be figuring out what I'm going to do next. And I love the metaphor from Saul Kaplan at the Business Innovation Factory. He said, my life has been about searching for a new learning curve because that's where I do my best work. And he said, I swing like Tarzan from one curve 
to the next. And I think that's a, a great metaphor and image for all of us is to swing like Tarzan from one curve to the next. Whitney, last question, final few minutes. Wrap up, build an A team. For those leaders on leadership that are listening, they're viewing this interview around the world, what practical advice would you give people to go out this afternoon and say, here are some immediate things as a leader you can begin doing to, in fact, build an A-team. Okay. Well, so recapping quickly, everybody in your organization is on a learning curve, including you. And your organization, your team is a collection of those learning curves. And you're going to optimize um, for a high-performing team by having 15% of your people at the low end, 15% at the high end, 70% of your people in the steep part of the curve. Some tips for you when you have um, is to go out and plot where your team is on a learning curve. And for the people at the low end of the learning curve, value their own experience, ask them what they're seeing, what they're thinking, don't be threatened by it, appreciate it. And if they do seem like they're struggling a bit, get them, facilitate some development for them. For your people on the steep part of the curve, I would say, make sure they have the stretch assignments they need. Don't just leave them be, push them a little bit and then appreciate them. And then for the people at the top of the curve, let them know that you need them to continue to develop people for the next six months to a year while they're there, but then you're going to help them jump or you want to encourage them to jump because you've now got this innovative capacity that's lying dormant and it's time to unleash that. And the way you do that is by having them jump to your learning curve. They've learned and now it's time to leap. Whitney, great conversation. I'm a huge fan. If you keep writing books, I'll keep buying them, reading them, and I'll have you back on on leadership. Tell us what you're working on. So when an organization works with you, what does it look like? How do they find you? Talk a bit about Whitney Johnson. Well, the best way to find me is to go to WhitneyJohnson.com and you can get a good sense of how I think about the world by listening to our podcast, the Disrupt Yourself podcast. One of the things that we love to do is to work with organizations that are high growth, whether they're growth stage companies, where whether they are just looking at accelerating their growth and helping to help your people be high growth kinds of people. And they do that by disrupting themselves. And so bringing in the S curve of learning framework into your organization is just it's just what it, it's what makes me get up in the morning and why I'm still in the sweet spot of the S-curve for my work. And Whitney, you do a lot of keynote speaking, right? So companies can also bring you in to keynote. What, what typically are the most popular themes and topics that companies hire you to speak about? Absolutely. So they typically will bring us in um, either because they're growing really quickly and they want to get their people to be able to grow as quickly as well. Sometimes they'll bring us in because they have this sense that organizationally they're kind of at the top of the curve and they want to inspire and instruct people to jump to the bottom of a new learning curve. And so they'll have us come in and or have me come in, I should say, and talk about this framework or personal disruption, what that looks like and, and have them feel encouraged to do this. And then also about um, building an A team for for emerging leaders and people who are trying to figure out how do I lead my team um, in a way that we can lower our disruption score as an organization. Whitney, thanks for joining us. Keep me posted on future books. And if you'll have us, we'd love to invite you back on. Oh, well, thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Have a great week. We appreciate you. 
And thank you for joining us on this episode of On Leadership. If you're not subscribing, please visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. It comes out every Tuesday complimentary in our On Leadership newsletter. Every week we interview a different thought leader, sometimes inside Franklin Covey, sometimes outside friends like Whitney today. You can also access it on any of your favorite podcast channels through iTunes, Stitcher, franklincovey.com. And you can invite all of your friends, family, and colleagues to join as well. You also can visit Franklin Covey for a whole variety of webcast, podcast, and great articles as well. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you back here next week with a new guest on leadership. <music>